Welcome to the Unfair Podcast. Hello and welcome to the OMFIF podcast. My name is Taylor Pierce and I'm economist of OMFIF's Economic and Monetary Policy Institute. Here with me today is OMFIF Chief Economist Neil Williams. We'll be discussing QE, QT and central banks' difficulties unwinding their balance sheets with a particular focus on the Bank of England. At its September 2022 meeting, the Bank of England's Monetary Policy Committee voted to begin sales of UK government bonds. On September 28th, the bank postponed the start of these gilt sale operations due to market conditions at that time. According to the bank's October 18th statement, the first sales of these gilt sale operations will now take place on the 31st of October. Neil, you've argued that central banks will struggle to reduce their balance sheets. Could the UK's experience over the past month or so be a sign of that? Well, I think what we've seen from the UK since the end of September, as you said, Taylor, really could be the test case for others amid still wide fiscal deficits and now, of course, during increasing policy rates in most major economies. To put into context, internationally, Japan's quantitative easing is rumbling on. In the US, through passive quantitative tightening, QT, the euro area where the ECB is only considering QT, they're still both at the very early stage of addressing their central bank's finances. And as you say, the Bank of England's own planned active quantitative tightening, which is beginning to sell the assets back into the system, has now been deferred really until the start of November. Now, for the UK, it also suggests another thing. And for me, that is that um, quantitative easing, QE, is after 12 years of using it, potentially still resting and maybe not yet dead. I say that because QE, of course, has not been panacea globally, and the Bank of England has been quick to differentiate its latest intervention from previous quantitative easing, which was aimed at stoking inflation. And that, that, of course, is true. But the effects look to be very similar. By trying to suppress bond deals and signalling that money printing can be used to finance fiscal spending, uh, it does remind us that fiscal considerations are still dominant in QE countries when it comes uh, to setting monetary policy, even as policy rates are now rising. And also in terms of the UK, having put up to £65 billion worth of support on the table for, in in that case, UK pension funds, the bank's action did look like a, a slightly different type to previous QE. However, it's important that if it's repeated, the implications could be similar. Again, looking back, Japan's QE started out as well as financial support, tumbling asset prices in the 1990s hurt Japan's banks' balance sheets and collateral, prompting them to write off loans. And then the Bank of Japan in 1997-98, from memory, stepped in to buy those banks' commercial paper. Now, that's become known as QE1, and an unbroken 24 years of government bond purchases later, they are still giving directly support. Now, of course, in the last couple of weeks, we've had a new prime minister in the UK, through Mr Sunak and a new chancellor through Mr Hunt, who are looking far less profligate in terms of fiscal spending, albeit they still have to explain how a 30 to 40 billion pound gap might be filled, which still means that asset prices, notably the pound, long yields, and of course our credit ratings in the UK, are still looking vulnerable, even with these government changes and a U-turn on some of those tax cuts. Right. You referred to some of the UK's underlying problems. What did you have in mind? Well, even before the turbulence over the past month or so, and indeed, even before COVID-19, you could say that uh, UK asset prices, especially the pound, 
but we're sitting on a bed of sand. Why is that? Because of the UK's relatively loose overall macro policy position compared to uh, some of the other industrialised economies. Now, I say that because the relative looseness of policy in the UK was most vivid prior to 2020, after which, of course, central banks and governments globally expanded in reaction to COVID. But over that period between 2000 and 2019, no major economy had undergone a bigger net loosening of its overall macro policy, monetary and fiscal together, than had the UK. And given the embedded inflation premium over this period, surely there's little coincidence or why the pound therefore underperformed on a trade-weighted basis compared to other currencies. Now, of course, the Bank of England is now making up for lost time in raising rates, but fiscal policy seems to be moving in the opposite direction. The Chancellor's planned fiscal spend, uh, even under the tighter conditions we now have, is still likely to postpone the peak in the UK's debt-to-GDP ratio, uh, which had have been expected to be in about 95.5% of GDP, starting at around this fiscal, this tax year. That now looks like it's going to be put back. So this, together with the overall looseness policy, even before this year, was always a fairly weak platform on which to introduce new risks. Right. And apart from the problems that you mentioned, which underlie a lot of these policies, what are some of the biggest risks you see in the current environment? Well, for the UK, first of all, before we move on to other global economies, I guess for the UK, there are three or maybe three and a half risks. The first one is that of deepening stagflation. We know inflation is high. My own feeling is it's still very much the wrong sort of inflation driven by cost rather than by demand inflation. So it's an unhelpful time for the pound to be weaker. Now, for what it's worth, the Bank of England's economic model assumes it takes four years for higher import prices caused by a softer currency to be fully passed on to a consumer price index basket that's about one third imported. Now, I say that because given that real wages are deflating again, this is probably not the right time to expect aggregate increases in wage growth across the board into the next election. Secondly, problems with balance sheets themselves. Given the wealth disparities that QE had perpetuated in whatever form, these could still prove to be disinflationary. Now, that sounds a little perverse. I say that because in reflation terms, adding liquidity in whatever form is most effective when it's passed on between consumers and firms. But in practice, the so-called velocity of circulation, the speed at which money is passed around the system, has been reasonably slow to recover. And money growth is now cooling in the UK and euro area and has pretty much stalled in the US. That the half a risk I mentioned uh, is still the very much the review that's going to take place of the Bank of England's independence. Now, a review in itself is probably sensible after 25 years of being independent. But there was always the risk from the previous prime minister and chancellor that its independence would be diluted. This looks now less likely under Mr Sunak and Mr Hunt. But until it arrives, there will always be an international risk premium attached to UK assets because of what may occur. And finally, more lastingly, is the cost or the risk of financing government borrowing, both in the UK and for the other QE countries. And just to put that into perspective, even in 2019, before major economies expanded fiscally, the US euro area and UK government net debt to GDP ratios at 77% were averaging more than twice Japan's 
when Japan limped into its lost decade in the mid-1990s. Now, how does Japan get away with it? Japan avoids disruption by having its government debt denominated in local currency, as do the UK, the US and the Eurozone, of course. But in Japan, that's held predominantly, 97%, by domestic investors less sensitive to yield and foreign sea currency ratings, suggesting that default risk is next to zero. Now, in the UK, going back to the turbulence we've had in the past month or so, about 40% of UK government market-held debt is, is owned internationally, uh, suggesting that the kindness of strangers going forward will increasingly hinge more on yield, currency and ratings considerations compared to Japan. In which case, just to round off three main things, with policy rates going up, the cost of financing the debt really is going to be tested. Secondly, for those countries unable to close the fiscal box, it may well be a problem. And thirdly, in which case, if fiscal policy is still relatively loose, how real is meaningful quantitative tightening going forward? Great. Well, thank you so much, Neil. It sounds like central bankers and monetary policymakers certainly have their work cut out for them. And thank you as well to our listeners. For more on the conundrum facing the Bank of England and other central banks around the world, be sure to check out Neil's commentary piece, Central Banks Struggle to Reduce Bloated Balance Sheets, which can be found on the OMFIP website. Also be sure to subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever podcasts are available. Thank you for listening to the OMFIP podcast.